Hi, I'm Irene Yanku, and this is my podcast. I have spent my entire career in dentistry learning. Learning about new technology, techniques to better my clinical skills, and now I'm a practice owner and leader. In life as a learner, I've noticed my truest love for learning has not been about teeth or what material is best to use for a core buildup. It's been learning about people in our dental community. The educators, scientists, clinicians, business owners, and advocates, their stories, their lives, their why, and their what's next. Getting to know them as humans, identifying how they work, what their rituals are, while highlighting them as the true trailblazers in dentistry. And that's what I do here on the show. So hold on to your suction. It's about to get slippery here on the Tooth or Dare podcast. Welcome back, peeps, to another episode of the Tooth or Dare podcast. Peeps, with your peep, Irene, hello, how are you? I hope you're having a wonderful day if you're watching this on YouTube. And if you're in the car or listening to it on the go, hello to you as well. This is part two of our episode recorded at Voices of Dentistry with my good friend, Perrin Desports. In episode one, or part one, you listened to Perrin talk about uh, selling his family business that was a fourth generation dental distributor to a really big distributor. He stayed on to be a quite critical role, managed quite a few people. And after 15 years of being a general manager, branch manager, he went on to make some big life changes and decisions, which are discussed in this episode. Other key points he talked about, I'm reading my little notes here on the computer. He talked about his journey through building a business, the questions that he often asked himself, like, am I happy? Um, And what should your day-to-day look like? What brought him joy? He also talked about how he envisioned these conversations happening with his family, the difficult parts of, you know, transitioning from one career to the next. And I can say that I've had those conversations too. I mean, originally I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I had to have that tough conversation with my parents of not wanting to go to law school after getting an undergraduate degree in political science. And then I had to you know, decide to leave teaching and leave clinical practice, working for somebody else to open up my own office. So I really feel deeply about all of the things that parents said about what it's like having a business partner, what it's like um, you know, having to make these really tough decisions what your values are and your intentions for your career and for your, you know, ventures. So I hope you enjoy this lecture, this lecture. Uh, I hope you enjoy this, um, this part two with Perrin Desports. And I hope that I'll see you in California in a couple of weeks. I'll be attending CDA and I'll be at the Designs for Vision booth on Thursday and Friday talking about all things loop related, infinity view loops, what types of magnifications you might consider, some of my personal experiences, and of course the podcast will be there too. We'll be recording some live podcast episodes which are gonna be really fun. So check that out. Um, And also last but not least, the link in my bio is gonna send you to two webinars that I'll be doing with my friends at Spear Education. They're free. 
The first lecture is on, I believe, July the 27th, called the Surgical Checklist. On July the 27th, I'll be delivering the surgical checklist and that will be a one hour lecture talking all about the things we want to know perio and prosto related. How should we be keeping our implants clean? Should, be should we be flossing them or using water flossers, manual toothbrushes, electric toothbrushes? Do we probe implants? All of those questions will be answered in that lecture. And then there's another lecture in August. Stay tuned. I'll share more information about that. But you know, one step at a time, I encourage you all to register for my surgical checklist lecture. Anywho, enjoy this podcast and I will catch you guys on the flip side. Peace out, peeps. Welcome back, peeps, to another episode of the Tooth or Dare podcast, Peeps, with part two with Perrin Desport. Last episode, Perrin, you shared with us your story of your family business, how you sold it to Patterson, how you then went on and worked with Patterson, led, I mean, leaded, <laughs> left the conversations you had with your wife, and then you alluded to a startup, which we're going to talk about today with sure. Polaris. We'll keep it quick because I know you got a flight to catch. It's all right. Uh, but I'm very interested to understand that conversation that you had about making that tough decision to leave your cushy job for a vision and yeah walk me through that conversation yeah great to be back with you you know Thank you. It, it's um so the the context was um in the prior episode that while i had had a i think a pretty successful career at patterson it was one that i didn't see myself doing for the next 20 years of my life or, or however long and i didn't want to move to minneapolis and take a corporate job with them and i didn't want to live life on an airplane and leave my wife and young daughter behind at the time so you know, you kind of do the analysis and that I like to say that sounds like a you problem, not a company problem. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted a, an opportunity to be to do something more entrepreneurial where I felt like I could be a bit more in control of what the next phase of my life and career was going to be. And so it led me to to launch a startup in um, I guess we technically started funding it in late 2016. I left Patterson in January of 17. Did they know or you were kind of just side hustling it? Um, I was side hustling it, um, you know, and I had had some candid conversations, I'll say, with, uh, with my boss at Patterson about, you know, that some of the changes that had taken place in the company, I just didn't know if I was going to be there the rest of my career. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't give him anything more definitive than that because I didn't know. Mm. And, and as for as long as I was going to be there, I was going to give it my all. But, yeah. you know, the... the so you weren't one foot in, one foot out like we see with many... I, I wouldn't say that I was one foot in, one foot out. I was fully committed to the yeah. team that I led yeah. at Patterson. And, and, you know, I owed them all that for sure. But you know, was dabbling on some things, you know, early in the morning, late at night on weekends, trying to figure out if I was going to leave, what was I going to do? Mm. and Or what did I want to do? What you know, did you want to do? Yeah. What did you think you wanted to do? I thought I wanted to leave dental altogether. And um, I talked to a lot of people um, uh, in, in, in my life about potentially an, an exit from Patterson. And you know, was I was trying to do the networking thing to figure out what exactly I did want to do. And one of them that I spoke with brought up something really, um, you know, really uh, important to me that I didn't realize at the time. And he said, Perrin, you've spent your entire year in, in the business of dentistry. 
that's where your tribal knowledge is, that's where your industry knowledge is, that's where all your contacts are, that's where you bring the most value. And he said, just realize that if you go to work in a different sector of the economy, be it healthcare or otherwise, you're walking away from all of that. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And it hit me with like a lightning bolt then that I was like, wow, okay, that's true. And I don't know, when when we talk about starting over, I don't know that I want to do that. I'd like to build off of something. And so a couple of uh, industry colleagues and I, had a vision for uh, building a, a, a software platform that would allow dentists to um, broker their own practice, much like a, a Zillow.com does for residential real estate. So, so basically, the dentist puts up their property, or yeah, and you like, can and you can just swipe through what's available, yeah, li- what amenities. Is there a tennis court next door? Like, where's the closest swimming pool? Yeah, is there a Starbucks nearby? What's the local school system? Um, can you get pre-approved for a, a loan to buy it? I mean, see, a dual-sided platform is buyers and sellers, essentially, yeah. you know? And and we wireframe the whole thing um, to a great degree, um, which was kind of a cool process. You blinked a lot. What is the, to a great degree? I mean, we mean? spent a lot of hours early in the morning thinking through, uh, user interface, user engagement, how to keep people on the platform. How do we generate revenue off the platform? Mm. Um, you know, the stickiness of it and everything yeah. like that, buyer profiles, seller profiles, all that kind of cool stuff. And I, that was fun. It was really creative. And, and we sunk a, couple of hundred grand into to building that or having a, a couple soft, hundred like two or a couple of hundred like closer to six cause so i'll say somewhere in the middle of that <laughs> it was it was enough to get your attention it's and like and when uh, someone says six figures like or what's the first of the six yeah figures? <laughs> yeah it was it was a good bit of money okay. and um and I'll, enough money for you to realize that well, it wasn't going to work. Yeah. So early in, t- I left Patterson in January of 17 and, um, we, uh, there were three of us operating the new, the new business, uh, and we were fully committed to, to making it successful. But part of that was that we intended to launch that software platform at the end of Q1 of 2017. And when we got the beta version around March 1st or somewhere thereabouts, it was nowhere near prime time. It was nowhere near being operational and and was not just buggy. It was incomplete and not viable. So you and got rid of it. Well, or we were at a point. Didn't. We were at a point where you know, okay, we're if we're that far away from being a viable platform, what does that mean in terms of further investment, and what does that mean in terms of time? Because all of that impacts how far away you are from being able to generate revenue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then like those of us working in the business, if we're that far away from generating revenue, how far away are we from generating profit or personal income? Yeah. And now you start really chasing the rabbit much more clearly to say, okay, we thought this would be a a year where all of us would work without income. We, we, Put money Planned aside. Yeah, and prepared yeah. And, but yeah. we didn't know if this was going to be two years or three years. It was a little bit of a an Hazy. oh heck kind of a moment. Uh-huh. And so, at that point, um, we did a pretty major pivot. And uh, my two partners in the business and I kind of doubled down and said, "Okay, if this isn't going to go, this may or may not go, but it's not going to go anytime soon. What can we do to make money?" And we yeah. started focusing more on the emerging group practice space and 
um, developing some level of a, a consulting offering, some level of uh, a debt uh, source, uh, capital sourcing option, as well as a, an opportunity to do sell-side advisory. Mm. And that really worked, and it mm. worked quickly, and we developed some notoriety. And that's called now Polaris, that's Polaris proper. That, that, was, that company was called Tusk Partners, okay. and um, I le- my, my current partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I left that company in March of uh, 2021 to launch Polaris. Okay. A little bit of a, a, a difference of opinion with the other people working in the business over the, the direction of the business and what sure. we wanted to build. and. You know, when when visions start to misalign, uh, it creates fissures in a partnership. So living through what I would consider a very successful venture, but ultimately a failed partnership at Tusk has really uh, allowed me and DeWalker to double down on what Polaris is and what we want it to be. And and I would tell you, for the people who are in your audience and are entrepreneurs at heart or building businesses and thinking about doing it, with a partner versus a solo venture. There's there's pluses and minuses oh, yeah. to both, obviously. If you're gonna do something in a partnership, um, you obviously want your, your visions and your intention to align. You wanna be um, congruent with one another in terms of the way you think about deriving income out of the business or leaving money in the business Financial for growth. Exactly. Are where most and arguments it, start and end, it, unfortunately. I, they absolutely are. And you know, the other thing about partnerships is that DeWalker and I don't agree about everything. Hmm. Um, We're different people. We see things differently. Um, We have, you know, at times different opinions about the growth and strategy of Polaris, but we never doubt one another that whenever we have differences of opinion, that the other is always putting the business before their personal interests. Mm. So I'm never arguing for my position against my partner because it benefits me more or because of my family needs more. Right. And I think that's one of the, the levels of trust that you have to have in a partnership that says that no matter when we disagree, um, the other person is advocating for what they want because they think it's in the best interest of the company and I'm a bif- beneficiary of that. Mm-hmm. And so that that's important to really learn a, before you form a partnership because yeah. if you don't, it will rear its ugly head and it's very uh uh, it's very costly yeah. <laughs> to get out of a I failed get, partnership. I think that's why, you know, the famous phrases of, you know, don't get into business with your family or with your friends. And it, it, it does become this relationship concern. And it's some of the most successful businesses that I know the inner workings of are those that have an outside partner that is separated from the business on perhaps the you know day-to-day proceedings and maybe they don't even come to the office they look at numbers and metrics performance over time yeah. or uh, you know it, as opposed to being stuck in this like you know relationship kind of battle between decisions that are made from day to day and this is so this I'll, I'll lead this question and, and perhaps we can do an episode three and four yeah. I know you have a flight to catch so I want to be very conservative with your time um one of the biggest questions that I get, so this the challenge for dental hygienists to open practices. A, not every state or province allows it. A lot of red tape. Um, on the transactional side, certain provinces and states won't allow the sell or the sale of an existing practice to a non-dentist. That's right. 
regardless of what your your licensure is. So I was toying with the idea of purchasing a practice from a dentist that was retiring, but it required a lot of work because of this custodian agreement of who is managing the charts and can the sale of the charts be done from a dentist to a dental hygienist, although there was no dentist in my corporation because I can't partner with one. Long long story, there's a whole episode on, on the inner workings and transactions of my, of my business that I'll link below. Um, how does that work? For example, let's say I wanted to open a practice. Capital was my biggest problem. I had a dollar written, dollar value written of what I needed as a personal injection for the bank to even take me seriously. So I needed 200K in liquid cash to be able to prove that I am able to sustain this for X amount of time. Um, what happens if a dental hygienist who is savvy, let's say, uh, business-minded and, and forward-thinking, wants to open a practice, but has had a, a variety of life changes that perhaps has led them to not be able to save as much as I have? Um, how, how can someone like that work with perhaps your company? Because uh, you did say that you help with funding and sourcing, and how does that work? We, we do help with funding and, and sourcing funds, but it's usually more in the group practice space than Got in it. the traditional solo space. So what I would, uh, the way I would answer that, though, and, and your question... It's very uh, multifaceted, it, I think. So, you know, it, pick, pick and choose yeah. the, the line you want to draw. It's, it's got a legal component to right. it. Um, and, and you're right. In most states in the United States, and I don't know the rules and regs in Canada, but in most states in the United States, uh, dental practices, charts and records have to be owned by a licensed dentist. Right. There are a few states where that's not the case, but that's the vast exception to the rule. So... Uh, there, beyond just the legal construct of, of can or can't, you get into um, the, the funding component of it. And so dental practices, uh, at least general dentistry practices in the United States, um, are, you know, 70 to 80 percent of the revenue is generated through um, dentist uh, clinical services and the, sure. uh, uh, the other component being the hygiene component right. to it. So when banks look at... Um, is that this, sorry, is that 70 doc, 40 hygiene? Is that the number that you just mentioned? 70, 70 30, ish, 80, 70, 20, 20, something 20? like okay, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got it. Yeah. Um, so banks love lending money to dentists because they're going to personally guarantee the loan. Right. Um, they are licensed to provide the services. Um, they're going to be working in that practice three to four to five days a week, come hell or high water, and mm -hmm. that business is going to succeed or fail based on them. There's really no better credit profile from a lender standpoint in terms of a small business and a small business loan. Uh, and there's a great demand for dental services, so you, you have enough waiting uh, Sustainability yeah, and the services yeah. that are provided um, under that. So it's a it's a really good gig from a banking standpoint. A little bit different when when you are um, either not licensed to provide the services in, in the case of like an administrative owner like me, or if you're only uh, licensed to provide part of the services in in your case. So this, the viability of the business takes on a different dynamic from a risk profile standpoint, and that's why. Uh, when when banks make lending decisions, they have all these different types of metrics, whether it's credit score or debt service coverage ratio right. or funded debt to EBITDA in a, in a group practice and all that other kind of jazz. The bank is trying to ascertain what their comfort level is with the continued revenue generation of the business and the, the person who guaranteed the loan. Right their ability to service the debt. What's sure. their margin for error, both on the home front and the professional front? Right. And, and 
that um, you know when you're a, a licensed dentist, usually that that profile is is pretty uh, reasonable. I would say as long as your consumption habits aren't that great. <laughs> it, when you're when you're not licensed to provide the services or all of the services, that's when you get into things like the fallback position that you mentioned sure. about you know having cash reserves and, and right. or a limited funding uh, amount based on the the total uh, value of the business. So your primary demographic to close before we make you miss your flight. No, no, I'm, we're, <laughs> we're, we're good for a little while. Okay. Yeah, for just a little um, bit. Is, is the solo doc that perhaps has a viable practice that they've had for a little while, however many, I, what, I'm sure your, your analysis of what that conclusion comes to, if they're ready for you or not, um, that perhaps is looking to scale and open a multiple location practice. And we talked about this vaguely on, on a previous practice uh, the other podcast. What is your opinion over creating satellite practice? So you're unable to sustain two practices at the same time. Perhaps you want to transfer your your associate or team members versus starting a group practice model. What are the differences between the two? Yeah, I think when you're talking about a satellite location, it's almost like a specialist from a standpoint that you're going to divide time between two locations. Or if in your core location, you have an associate that is maybe part-time that wants to become full-time, but you either don't have the patience uh, or the capacity in terms of treatment rooms to accommodate that without literally tripping over one another. Mm -hmm. So the ability to do a, a, a satellite location that may pull some of uh, the patients out of the core location um, and have a, a springboard, a cornerstone, a, a floor of revenue to build off of and make yeah. the second location viable while while freeing up some capacity, um, provider time and share time uh, in the core location is, is definitely a, a good strategy. It's sort of an iterative uh, type of a strategy. That's different from acquiring a second location outright. Yeah. Because buying a second location outright has um, a greater degree of jeopardy with it based around... Um, what you're actually buying from the seller. Mm. And the, in that case, you know, you're buying charts and records for sure, but at the same time, you're buying um, a legacy of systems and processes. Their problems. And culture. Yeah. Which is a polite way. Uh, yeah, that was the to, most uh, polite way uh, yeah. of him saying you're buying someone else's problems. Uh, you know, you're acquiring those employees that have been there for a long time that perhaps are overpaid. Don't like change. Don't like change. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So, so the legacy of the seller looms right. large. That's a that. fancy way the yes. bankers say the problems. They call it legacy. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So, so you know that, uh, but but that's not to say that you can't be successful doing that. There are a lot sure. who are, and um, you know, frequently uh, we see our clients that are building groups or are, are, are doing it by acquisition versus de novo. Mm. Um, so there are practices uh, available for sale. There's a in the at least in the U.S. It's sort of a a top heavy. Um, uh, segment of the population of dentists that's going to be exiting in the next three to five years. So hmm. there'll be an abundance of practices. The baby boomer docs. Yeah, retiring yeah. And, and transitioning out. Um, and and I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities to buy businesses. But when you do that, it's not just a matter of buying the business. You always want to think through what are a couple of areas of revenue that I think I can generate? You yeah. know, maybe keeping specialty services in-house, maybe a marketing plan to drive new patients, maybe putting another associate in to expand days and hours. 
et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and then what are some of the areas where I think I might be able to take some of the cost structure out of the business? So you right. don't buy a business just to maintain it. Like what? It. What what would you look at first by cost Well, I mean, you've got structure. things like supplies, Overhead. lab. You've got um, professional services like legal and accounting. Sure. If you get a, a group practice to some level of, of size and volume, you can actually start to take some of the redundant headcount out of the business by centralizing it. Mm -hmm. You probably need to be between six and ten locations to make that worth your while. Right. Um, but certainly that's the... You see, you see group practices kind of morphing through a couple of different phases. One's the emerging group, which is kind of like, call it two to five locations, loosely put. And then the next phase is centralizing administrative services, and that's kind of the the six to fifteen location, maybe. And, and then by, you're and by centralizing, you don't mean outsourcing. You mean having your main practice and then remotely well it would be or are you also outsourcing there would be some services. opportunity maybe to outsource some things but you, you think about like um like a centralized call center yeah or so, so hr yeah right uh, time off requests and yeah. those types of things legal and accounting procurement um call center functions for um, overhead so purchasing equipment and uh supplies, supplies and, like mm -hmm. that gets done and distributed through yeah. one main yeah. yeah so so there when you do that you're you have the ability to, to create economies of scale yeah and you also have the ability to do it more efficiently that, that does not require the same level of human input mm -hmm. that it does on a practice by practice by practice basis mm -hmm. and yeah, obviously, if you're going to build a group, you don't have to build a 20-location group. There's nothing wrong with a three- or four-location group that has nice revenue characteristics and passive income for the mm -hmm. founder. There's That's great, mm -hmm. you know, and we have a lot of clients that stop at three or four or five locations for that very reason. And then we have a number of others that go, you know, from that level to full centralization to get to 20 locations. And right. that's a much bigger, more dynamic business. Well, that also leads back into what M Mark said yesterday about figuring out what your freedom number is yeah. and yeah. and perhaps that might be the, the thing that you decide is how many how many practices do I need to have in order to hit my freedom number by this year yep. and then you continue or stay for that you know legacy number yep. that you want uh, interesting that's some really great information um, and I, I'll, I'll link all of your information okay. below and I feel like this is an, uh, a conversation one needs to have with themselves as a business owner of Am I happy with my one practice or am I happy being an associate? Do I want more and what does that look like? And it sounds like you're offering services that can help with just that initial conversation, the consulting service that you provide. I mean, I feel like you just gave me a therapy lesson and a free <laughs> consulting all at the same time to, to, to come to that realization. Well, we, we do, we have a retainer based consulting service that we offer clients that we typically work with a, a consulting client about 12 to 18 months, yeah. you know, um, we have associate equity models and growth capital solutions and all that kind of good stuff as well. But, you know, for the people who are in that, you know, early thought, stage, yeah, they're in that thought process of should I or shouldn't I, everybody else is doing it. Maybe I should do it too. That's a bad reason to build a business yeah. for sure. But we have a, a one day offering a service offering called a discovery day. I teach probably 80 to 90% of them and it's one-on-one -on -one with the client and, it, and a discovery day is what you might, call group practice fundamentals. I mean, I like I, a 101. Yeah, I mean, we go through 
GP uh, 101. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it, but it's foundational knowledge that kind of connects the dots for, um, uh, for a, a would-be group owner before they actually commit money and time to doing it. Yeah. And one of the things that we try to stress with those clients is, you know, what are you trying to build and why are you trying to build it? Yeah. You know, and, and don't think that you have a successful solo practice so it will be easy to add a second location. It will not, no. you know, and, and the people that come and spend a day with me, I'd, I'd say that probably about one out of four elect not to build a group practice. Hmm. And they may never be a client of ours, but I feel like I talked them out of what was going to be a bad decision mm -hmm. that would cost them a lot of money and heartache. So this one-on-one -on -one discovery, is that something that's done virtually or no, they we fly to you? Yeah, they fly to Charlotte and spend the day with me. It's, we, I teach out of a, uh, about an 80-page PowerPoint deck, but it's really a deck that's supposed to create more conversations and questions that they didn't know to ask. And then we have the ability to whiteboard a bunch of stuff too. So, you know, sometimes I'll teach out of the deck, we'll have conversations that might be personal and intimate in nature, financial typically, yeah. um, or um, things that they like, that they just feel like they got to know. And it's not in the deck, but I can teach about it and we'll do it all on the whiteboard. So wow. it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a loosely structured type of a day together, but six to seven hours, you can cover a lot of ground. Oh, yeah. And it's very, we find... Our, our, our net promoter score ratings are huge on them, and there's a lot of value that people mm. derive from them. So it's I think I want to do this with you. <laughs> yeah. It's a, well, my uh, husband is an accountant. Okay. He's a CPA. He, he works uh, Royal Bank Dominions and Wealth mm -hmm. Management, so he is quite familiar and does all of the accounting for our practice. So we've got a structured kind of meeting where we sit together and we talk about numbers, and we've got very yep. nice pie, pie charts and graphs and Excel spreadsheets. But I feel like this is a conversation that I would like to further have with you for Great. six to seven hours so it's um ha we can cover a lot of ground yeah. that's for sure so and at least it'll help you make a decision one way or another and i find that really yeah um everyone wants to sell you on something right right like everyone wants a new client and we're chasing new clients all the time um and i i like this that you're you're not chasing anyone you're like i'll spend a day with you yeah and uh, and we obviously charge for honest, the service of course, but right. you it's know not, your it time is not free Interesting. Wow. Very valuable. Well, uh, thank you for sharing this information. Yeah. I'm going to um, ask you one really tough question Go at for the very it. end. Um, what's one thing you wish you didn't know? What's one thing I wish I didn't know? Um, Take your time. Hmm. Nobody's ever asked me that before. I don't know that I've got a good answer for it. It doesn't um, have to be good. Um, gee, I don't know if I've got an answer for it, Irene. I mean, I'm trying to come up with something. It doesn't have to be dental. Uh, yeah, or, I mean, anything profound. Someone gave me an answer yesterday that they wished that they didn't know all of the history behind jazz music. <laughs> How like, deeply that, depressing yeah. it was. And it, yeah. it, was, it was a left field, didn't see yeah. that one coming. Yeah. Or something that you learned the hard way. What's one thing that you wish you, you, you didn't have to learn the way that you did? Well, I mean, I, I, that one would be um, 
a little bit easier, and it's relative to that failed partnership that I, I mentioned before. Um, you know, it's look, we're all different people, and businesses are dynamic animals. You know, and not everybody is wired the same way from um, a values or intention or um, altruism versus self-interest standpoint. And um, at some level, that's what makes the world go round, you know. But it, I've never been through a divorce before. I hope I never do. But a business divorce is probably uh, not too dissimilar uh, and can be very anxiety-provoking, heart-wrenching, um, emotional, and, and costly. <laughs> and I'm better today for having been through that process. I'm a better business partner. I'm probably a better person. But I didn't enjoy going through the process, um, not just for the stress that it caused, but also for... Um, maybe some of the things that are brought to light. And, and you know, I think that's, and, and for the business partner I left behind, it would probably be equally, um, an equally negative experience for him as well. Right. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm No one I'm wants their life turned upside down yeah. and public and open and yeah. dissected and, yeah. And, and I mean, you know, I share in the blame for some of that. Like I'm not without fault, <laughs> you know, so, um, so this is not a, you know, you're a bad person, I'm, a, I'm the best person type of uh, commentary whatsoever. Um, so, you know, those are, but those are lessons that we learn in life at any stage of life, and hopefully we can draw some level of appreciation out of them too. Absolutely. So, the yeah. light at the end. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. thank you so much for, for being with this me and great. sharing you this bet. information. Um, all of the information that we shared below, including a transcript, will be below. And uh, I look forward to meeting you in Charlotte and, and furthering We're this conversation. Thank ab you. Absolutely. For your honesty. That was great. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I really have enjoyed it. You're a great interviewer, and I, I look forward to hopefully doing it again sometime soon, too. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you very much. Bye. Peace out, peeps. Oh, hi. So you made it all the way to the end. Thank you for sticking around. And I hope you enjoyed this episode, found it informative, entertaining, and of course, as per usual, find me hilarious. If you liked what you heard, it would really mean a lot to me if you could show your support by liking, commenting, or sharing this episode with a friend or family member. Your feedback and engagement helped me get on the mic today, and it would also improve our future shows and reach more people who maybe could benefit from our content as well. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to my podcast on your favorite platform or on YouTube. Follow along on this crazy journey with me at toothlife.irene and at toothordare.podcast on Instagram and Twitter. That way you'll be the first to know when episodes are released and you won't miss a beat. I appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more great episodes in the future. From my team to yours, thanks again for listening and I'll catch you on the flip side.